Welcome to the Community Builder Podcast. The world is our classroom, and every moment is an opportunity to understand human connection at a newer level. On this podcast, we'll explore the minds of active community builders as they strive to leave their imprint on the world. Travis King. Let's build. Before we get started, we would like to thank our sponsor, Cruise Control Music, the ultimate audio branding experience. Cruise Control Music creates custom, authentic sounds and music to showcase your brand identity and is a direct reflection of your vision, goals, and values. If you're looking to start or level up your podcast experience, log on to cruisecontrolmusic.com. Gary Chow from Orbital, and it's a studio for building networks. And I'm super excited to chat with him today and um, dive a little bit more into what he's currently working on and just learn some things from his you know, point of view. So welcome to the show, Gary. Thanks, Travis. Of course. So yeah, if you wouldn't mind just filling people in some context on what Orbital is, um, kind of what you're currently up to over there, and just to kind of jump things off? Yeah, so I think there's the theoretical description and there's the practical description. So right. the theoretical description is exactly what you just said. It's a studio for building networks. And that's because my personal and intellectual interests have been around like how do we create new people-based networks that are relevant infrastructure for whatever it is we're trying to do, whether it's supporting ourselves and our work, whether it's about helping us kind of achieve or realize our aspirations. And, and there's all sorts of purposes. The practical kind of explanation of what orbital is, is that when you have such a heady goal that you're trying to explore, you have to kind of build the ship that lets you sail out into the ocean exploring that thing. And for me, that took the form of an old tenement building in the Lower East Side that I manage. And there are people that work out of the space. And we run some of our programs in the space as well. But like conceptually, it was kind of a way for me to trick a lot of my friends to hang out with me on a regular basis. Uh, so I could have people to see, have people to talk to, have people to kind of jam with. Uh, and it's absolutely played out that way. Trickster. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, like New York is, I mean... You know this, right? Like New York is so incredibly populated and dense, but it's also like incredibly lonely because everyone's doing their thing. And so if I were to, let's say like we were buddies and I, and I just called you every single day to be like, what are you doing? You want to hang out? What do you think about this thing? At some point you would be like, hey man, just chill out a bit. Like maybe I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks or something. And so it's hard to kind of get people into your sphere unless you kind of have like a, a seemingly natural way to go do that. And, and, you know, I no longer work as like a salaried employee in a corporation, so I don't have coworkers. I don't have kind of the natural excuse to hang out and talk to people. So I guess this makes me all look really psychotic, I guess. No, no, <laughs> of course not. That's, that's very interesting to me because it sounds like there's a unique, I guess, like community of people. So like, I guess, could you share with people like who 
are orbital members or like who like gravitates towards them or even like who did you trick into spending time with you <laughs> on a daily basis? Like, Well, one of my friends, um, Kenyatta Cheese, has a company called Everybody at Once. And Kenyatta and I originally became friends via Tumblr. Uh, and then he actually came and guest lectured in one of my classes and, and he's brilliant. And so, but he's also very busy. So he has a company, uh, that works out of the space. Um, my teaching partner, Christina, she is a freelance ethnographer and we teach together at SVA. And that's like a once a week thing in usually the spring semester of the year. But by having this space, you know, she needs a place to camp out, do work, jump on conference calls and stuff. So she actually sits next to me now. And so I get to see her all the time, uh, which is kind of great. And there's a whole kind of loose community of folks who have come through. Like there are freelancers that work out of the space. There have been some small startups that work out of the space. Um, but there's also been kind of this other um, kind of segment. Um, we've had a lot of people come through Orbital who um, were in between things, right? And you know, let's say you are at your job and you decide that you're done and that this is, isn't really the right thing for you. You know, you might walk away from something, but then how do you figure out the next thing? Like you're just sitting in your apartment by yourself talking to nobody. Um, and so we've had this really interesting use case where Orbital has actually been really helpful for folks that have been in between things. And I think like that's not like the goal or the mission, but I think it does tie to the fact that communities of pe communities and networks of people uh, are such important kind of, you know, infrastructures, depending upon whatever your goal is. Yeah, yeah. I actually want to dive a little bit deeper into um, the notion of being in between things, right? Like so many people are in different stages of their life. They, like you said, they're switching jobs or just switching interests, switching passions or projects for that matter. Um, like, could you talk a little bit about some of like what you've seen in that specific, like in your orbital community of like what some people have either created, done, learned when they were in between things? You know, I think some people were at the start of kind of an idea and, you know, they created like an initial prototype that thing eventually turned into a company and that kind of went through the whole life cycle. That's, that's like one example. I think, you know, another example is, you know, someone who's maybe a little bit more burnt out and they kind of take that time to start to reassess who they are, what they're about, what their goals are. But then they're also able to kind of have that conversation in dialogue with a bunch of people that actually have no real vested interest in what they're doing. Right. And so they're getting honest feedback as a result. You know, and I think that's the hardest thing about navigating uncertainty as an individual is how do you kind of steady yourself through that? Your, you know, your friends might actually just want to tell you what they think you want to hear, right? Because they want to be good friends to you, mm -hmm. but that might not be the thing that's really in your best interest. You know, and so I think just access to dialogue has been a common thread for folks, whether it's access to the dialogue in the form of, I've got this new thing I want to go make, or whether it's access to dialogue in the form of like... I'm exploring a bunch of things. I want to see how things feel. Yeah. And when you're like, I guess, working with people and helping them explore, like how much like interaction or like structure is there, right? Like it's, it seems like it, it could be, you know, something like the wild, wild west when it comes in, it's just like, okay, like now we have this room full of people with ideas. So like, how do you go about structuring that or making, you know, a framework for people to follow? So that way they can kind of at least see a path to where they're, you know, going in the future. If at all. I don't, I don't know if there is, right? <laughs> right? You know, I think I think that early on when I started Orbital, you know, and Orbital's also been a vehicle for me to 
learn a lot of things about myself, to do things I hadn't done before. And so there's a whole personal growth thread in that as well, too. But to answer your question, I think early on, I tried to do um, much more structured, formal stuff. And I think over time, I realized that that wasn't really important. People just needed to feel like they had access to folks who they could be open and vulnerable with. And, mm-hmm. and that's and and then if you've if you've done a good job of filling the room with good people, then things will usually work out. You know, it doesn't need to be so structured, um, or it doesn't need to be. It's not necessarily a, a specific process, right? One thing when we were um, chatting yesterday, that I thought was very interesting in, in, in regards to like people is that like you're like the alumni that go through Orbital, and you mentioned what was it was like eighty percent of yes. um, people that. Are now orbital? Are they members? Or are they? They, they were students? alumni. So we've one of the programs that we've run at Orbital has been peer networks. So peer based learning programs for designers, engineering managers, product managers at mostly tech companies here in New York. And we just started our new a new cohort. This is our seventh cohort, and it's been a long while since we did our last one and so this has been a bit of a revival of sorts and and yeah we've 80% of the people who applied to this round were referred by uh, alumni of 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 that program they've gone through that before and i think it's i think it's ties to what you're saying before i think that like opportunities to have open and honest dialogue with people who have similar responsibilities as you is so hard to find mm-hmm. because you know, we spend the majority of our waking hours with people that we work with in the workplace. And the workplace is not a space for that kind of dialogue. The work, the workplace yeah. is a performative environment. You're not going to be totally honest about the things you're confused about. You're not going to be totally honest about the things you're frustrated with. No one want, no one likes to show their warts, right? There's all sorts of power. Warts. I love that word. <laughs> I love warts. Sorry, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a nasty word, but like it's it just, just visually it kind of, it's kind of weird. But, yeah. you know, and, and I think that the, the, the truth, you know, someone actually shared this. So we have a concept that we follow called Chatham House Rule, which, which, is, which allows me to talk about these sensitive topics without identifying people. Um, in yesterday's session, we had someone who made the point that I've completely uh, forgot about because I'm so used to running these programs, which was that this woman made this point that her big insight over the past year was this realization that actually nobody at her company knows what they're doing, right? Ooh. And But we're kind of trained to fit into this fiction where everybody knows what they're doing except for you. Right. Mm, right. Right. Which flips the whole and like your whole mindset around that. It, it totally does. Because if you walk into that, you're constantly on the defensive. You're thinking everyone knows what they're doing. I'm the only one who doesn't know what I'm doing in my job. I am so I'm like something ha- you know, I'm I need a lot of help. But if you reframe it and understand that everyone is doing their job for the first time you know, in, in that way, you know, for these challenges, everyone's facing new challenges. You know, I think it opens you up to being quite a bit more um, sympathetic to the struggles and the challenges of your peers. But I think it also helps set a better default baseline, um, which lets you manage your own challenges, your own anxieties, and all the things that come to, you know, that are involved in making your own job challenging. And I think one thing that's, that also gets me thinking about like different ways to, I guess like make like 
to help people unlock their full potential, right? Like sometimes if you're operating in an environment where there's boundaries or there's limits, you kind of get into this fixed thinking mindset. So I guess, could you talk a little bit about your experience, like working with or talking through some of your members who maybe, you know, didn't necessarily understand that they're setting themselves up for constrained thoughts or just like more limited thinking? And then how did you help them break through and kind of see more unlimited possibilities? You know, the root of this actually is just in my own career. So I used to work in in tech, you know, mostly as a product manager at a number of startups and and um, also some larger companies. And I moved to New York in 2010 to uh, work at a, cap, a venture capital firm, Unisquare Ventures. And this was the, the thing about uh, that transition was I went from having a career where you are fully aware of your own narrative around you, but it's just one narrative, mm-hmm. to an environment that as a venture capital firm, USV has invested in, you know, at that time, maybe like 25 to 30 different startups. So you go from that single narrative to then all of a sudden having access to like 20 or 30 different narratives for how people do product management, how people ship software, how people manage conflict, how people grow and progress. And that shattered so much of my, I think, preconceived notions that there was a one right way to do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the and, and I think that shift, that context shift, is I think what people get. You know, today at Orbital, whether it's through our programs or as a member, right. having access to more narratives. You know, whether you are someone who has the exact same role that I do, or whether it's someone who's working in a very different field, the willingness and the ability to share, the, the willingness for people to enable the community around them to see and understand what they're going through. You know, those data points, you you somehow kind of, you store them in the back of your head and you eventually triangulate and you figure out, oh, that thing that this person said, that totally is exactly what has happened to me, but in a very different context. Mm-hmm. And when you get that, you start to realize, you know, how much control you don't really have, how how much one is figuring things out, uh, just how hard, you know, it is to make progress on things. Um, and so I think being able to contextualize the things you're going through is prim- pretty much the best that you know, you can do for people. You can't solve the problems for them. You know, they may be working on things where there are no answers, but just access to data points, access to stories, you know, that's a huge part of it. Yeah, I really love the access to stories side of this because a lot of people, I'm also guilty of this, is sometimes I think people understand like what I'm trying to say or teach them. Um, and literally it just doesn't make sense to them. So like being able to like on the regular access different stories from different points of views from people with different levels of experience and backgrounds and all sorts of things. It's like, it just, it makes sense as to why like certain things happen in that environment. So another thing that I've also been thinking about and wanted to learn more about when it, as it relates to Orbital is like, what are, I guess, what are some of the like hardest things that come with running a community of so many different types of people, right? Like, I feel like it's not just like one size fits all like person that comes into an orbital space and like works there. It's like, what, like, what are some of the challenges that you like face or I'm going to share? You know, I think the, we talked about this a little bit yesterday. I think that it took me a while to really understand the nature of how everyone wanted to exist. So what I mean by that is Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, starting a space is obviously a very aspirational venture. You know, it, it certainly comes with 
you know, hopes and dreams or preconceived notions of, of how you think people are going to interact and engage. And so early on, I tried running, you know, some programs or you know, gathering people to do things at specific points in time. Um, and none of it ever really worked very well. And, and I realized that like with assumptions about people's priorities and making assumptions about their schedules, you know, first and foremost, what they have available, their level of comfort around sharing certain things or doing certain things, their level of interest. And also in terms of what things, you know, what, what people really need or don't need, right. you know? And so over time, one of the things that I figured out was that if we, if we do anything in person, it should probably be around meals. Mm, because like dinners, lunches. Because exactly. Because I think for one, we've all implicitly bought into this normalization of having an open hour sometime somewhere around somewhere around noon and one o'clock. Yep. Um at or, lunch at twelve today. <laughs> <laughs> or um, you know, sometime around five or six o'clock, it gets a little bit easier to, to for people to pull away from whatever their whatever task they're doing. And so you can gather around those points in time. Uh, but the other thing too, like I think, you know, food and the, the just the the ritual of eating, it puts everyone on the same playing field or in a sense, like we're, we're doing, we're engaged in this ritual that we're both familiar with, that we both know how to do. So there's not as much social awkwardness about, you know, sitting around a table or something, we're just eating. Right. And that, you know, puts people at a place where they're, they're, they're more willing to share things or to engage. And, and then when they do, it's based on their own terms. You know, you're not like the, I think the more that you, if you're managing a community, I think the more that you create, the more that you do to try to create mandatory activities, the, I think the worse that it is in a a sense, because you're not enabling people to form relationships of their own agency you know, and it's not to be said that like you need complete chaos, but, right. and you need constraints. And I think that sometimes, you know, creating board game like interactions is actually really helpful, but um, you can take it too far. You can over engineer it where it feels like people are there to engage just to please you, the the manager of this community, uh, because it's really important to him. And so therefore we should go do these things. And, and then you've really screwed up the incentives at that point. Right. And I think that's also interesting. Yesterday, we also talked a little bit about like the people in the room at a dinner. I guess, what have you learned about inviting people to dinners and like different contexts of like, maybe this person and this person are competitors in the same space. So maybe I shouldn't have them at dinner together or like vice versa. Maybe these two people are in completely different worlds and I should, you know, want to have them to dinner because they could help each other and share stories that will help move their business forward. So could you touch a little on that? Yeah. I, so I guess like the dinner party metaphor, I use that metaphor sometimes to just talk about how 90s, I, I feel like the vast majority of of successful communities is just having inviting the right people in. And it's, if you get the right people in the room, it alleviates a lot of the pressure on how you, uh, what you do to potentially get them to engage. So I think there's that, but I think there's also this notion of your job is not to be the engineer of how people should engage and you shouldn't necessarily predict things. It's almost like you're being, you shouldn't feel like you're trying to set a bunch of people up on a blind date or something Mm. because you're overdoing it. But as a dinner party host, you kind of have a sense of, you know, what people's strengths are and what people are interested in. And you want to read the room and make your way around the room. And 
introduce people when you need to, but the vast majority of work was done by simply inviting people and get them, getting them to show up at a certain time. You know, and so that, so I think like a specific example would be something like our studios, right? So the, the, the programs for our product managers, designers, engineering managers, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out, hey, well, who is this really for? And how do we filter and screen to ensure that when people arrive, they feel like everyone in the room is someone who they can relate to mm-hmm. and is someone who they can learn from. And if you can do that, if they're bought into this idea that, hey, all these people are peers, then anything else that you want to do downstream of that is a lot easier. Right. But if they show up and they feel like, I have no idea why I'm here, I don't, I don't relate to any of these people, I've lost some trust at that point. And I think getting folks to then take more risks to abdicate control to you to do certain things they're not they're not going to be willing to do that you have to earn that yeah and that's that's interesting too because as i like think of that i'm like well like if i was like in that situation of being like oh i'm not really sure that i'm supposed to be talking to this person or i don't know how how we match up so it's it's definitely interesting to, to to hear that. Like one of the first things, so we run our programs at eight in the morning because it's the only time to get people. Ooh, uh, that's challenging. <laughs> I'm just saying that. Just, it's, it's, it's challenging. It's the only time to get people out of the office at the same time, at a point in time when they have the energy. If you try to run programs after work, everyone is tired. Everyone's exhausted. Everyone carries with them the conflict and the chaos of their work environment. And so one of the jokes I usually make, and maybe it's not a good idea to tell everyone all of my jokes on a podcast, but it's okay. one of the jokes I make is I thank people for allowing me to recreate their high school lunch nightmares, right? Of like, oh, what table oh. am I going to sit at? And, and And that's the feeling when they first come in, right? Because you're walking into a room, you know, into this old tenement building in the Lower East Side, you know, you know nobody. And yes, you got name tags. And there's this, there's this 15 minute period from when it starts to when the program officially starts where you have to, you're forced to socialize at 8 a.m. And, and, and I just, I, I put that on the table because I want to acknowledge to this group that yes, okay, we, we did this, but we're going to get past this and we're going to spend the rest of the time proving to you all that you all belong together, even though you don't quite know it at the moment. Right. And, and, and so I'm asking for permission for, for them to extend kind of a leap of faith at that point. But then you have to deliver on it. Yeah, because I can only imagine if someone got me to do something at 8 a.m. and then <laughs> turns out they didn't know what they were doing. You'd flip the table and you'd be gone. Yeah, right? I and definitely you, wouldn't come back. So yeah. no, I think, that, I think that's very... It sounds like it's something that I don't want to say is... Oh yeah, I feel like some of the things that differentiate Orbital from others is like that close knitness, and very curious to like from your POV of like what's different about Orbital, like as a community compared to like any other tech incubator or space out there. You know, I, I had a constraint that I put on myself, which is that I never wanted to hire anybody, and the reason for that is that I think once you hire somebody you're spending a lot of your time and energy managing whoever it is you're hiring, no matter how great they are, yep. right? Or if you're not managing them, you're concerned about um, their growth, their well-being. And that constraint forced me to work at a small scale. And so everything that we do is at a small scale. So these these programs, you know, we have about 15, 16 people per cohort. I think a lot of times when people start things, there's this sense of we're going to grow it to scale, we're gonna get this scale. Meet, that we're, word. We're gonna get this meetup to eighty people, to hundred people, 
we're going to, instead of having five people, five companies in a cohort, we're going to grow this accelerator. So we have 5,000 people going through simultaneously. And there's a reason that for, for why that scale is driven. You know, there's also, when we think about people-based networks, I think the defaults to think about Facebook and Twitter. And in my mind, those are just two examples of network architectures, you know, that were mostly driven by venture capital to, and, and actually wealth creation, really, to be honest. But those aren't the only types of network architectures. Yes, we need skyscrapers, but I think, or the Do cities. Skyscrapers <laughs> going to skyscraper. I don't, I don't know if it's something you really control, but not all kind of containers for people who are engaging with each other need to necessarily take the form of a incredibly dense, hyper-connected city. You could have the small towns, you know, you could have Hudson, New York, or or whatever, whatever, whatever your flavor of the month is. There's, mm-hmm. there's so many different ways in which you can bring people together and get them to engage. And I think there's some advantages of being at scale. There's a lot of advantages of being at scale, and there's some advantages at being at kind of a small scale. And I think I've personally just found that you can go deep on things. You can uh, you can create things that are really hard for people to otherwise access. So it sounds like you're making a a lot of hidden treasures. I've learned, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think I've learned a lot more about what it really means to connect people and what you can enable if you can successfully connect people in interesting and meaningful ways. And I think that, you know, when I was designing products, digital products, I think part of the challenge was that you're so far removed from the actual experience of the person that's using the thing, right? So let's say I'm a PM for like a mobile app. Well, that mobile app, you know, the the other person on the other side of the thing that you're building you know, there's like a couple of servers in between. There's a there's a mobile phone. There's all these hops, and the only signal that you get back from that end user is probably some metric that lives in a database. But you don't actually get to see kind of what effect did this have. Whereas when you run an event in an enclosed space, and there's 15 people there, and if you're doing a horrible job and no one's getting anything out of it, it is incredibly obvious to everybody mm-hmm. that that's what's happening. And then you have to come correct and fix it. Right, you're forced to learn quickly. You're forced to iterate. You're forced to ensure that everyone is getting value out of this interaction, and you're also forced to confront your own fallibility as a designer. Right, you might think you were the best dinner party host on the planet, but it turns out everyone hates going to your dinner parties, right? Or everyone's afraid of you, or everyone, you know, people aren't opening up for some reason, and maybe you're the problem. And so you have to reconcile all those things. And I think that as technology has gotten easier and easier to wield, it's easier and easier to produce things that we think are actually having the desired effect, right? We can pretend that we made the most valuable thing on the planet because it just looks really cool. But whether or not it actually succeeds at connecting people in the way that you wanted to, whether or not it actually fully kind of unlocks, you know, the potential. I mean, your whole podcast is about the potential around connecting people in interesting, mm-hmm. meaningful ways. Um, but like, guess what? It's an iterative process. You're going to start with an intent that you have in mind, but you're not going to get it right on the first time any more so than you can, you know, draft the perfect essay on the first shot. You know, the you can't old, do that. You can't, <laughs> as much, you know, and that's like the frustrating thing is that it's almost like the more you become an expert at this, the more you realize how much you can't just jump to the end. The only thing you get to do is to decide whether you commit to take the first step towards iterating to get to the thing that you need to do. And it's it's incredibly humbling. 
So this whole process of running Orbital, running these programs, experimenting with ways to connect people, seeing a lot of things not work out as intended, trying to fix it and iterate it has very much been also simultaneously this process of understanding my own tendencies. And do you see, I guess, have you seen like some of your own tendencies um, throughout, like from different members of Orbital, right? Like now you've been through this, you know, seven times, this is your seventh go around. Like, so like, is it enlightening to like look around and just see maybe parts of yourself going through something that you can like help someone with? Or I guess, could you talk a little bit about what, what it's like, like watching different people come through and like knowing what journey you've went through? Yeah. Like how you can apply your stories to help them. I think I know what you're saying. And I think that what I have, I think I've reframed kind of what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I've learned to see it in a different way, which is, yeah, you see patterns and you start to recognize patterns that um, apply to you. Right. You know, like, so for example, I also, so I teach at um, the School of Visual Arts MFA Interaction Design Program, and I've taught seven years there. And and as I've gone through Orbital, I've learned to recognize when I'm confronting challenges and issues that like, oh yeah, this is what so-and-so went through a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that's what's happening. And it's happening to me now. And so what did I, what advice did I give? And 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 you kind of build up that pattern library, but I think I think the 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 end result of all of that has been I don't know it's kind of just accepting our own humanity, right? Like like I was thinking about this yesterday in a very different context, just how um, there's this notion of of um, exceptionalism, right? That drives I think you know, that motivates a lot of people. Right, and it's a it's a good motivating factor, but I, I don't know if it's really I don't know if it really makes a lot of sense. Like I think that um, I think the best way to grow is to kind of almost acknowledge our own humanity and, and our own fallibility and everything, right. and realize that uh, just because we did something awesome last week, it doesn't mean that we get to skip all the steps. You know, you you got to go through and you got to put in the work, you, and, and even then, you're not guaranteed to have things work out. And so I think I recognize the fallibility more in myself. And I think that is how I ultimately relate to the folks that come through. Yeah, because one thing I'm trying to like tease out here is like, what are some of the traits? So I've been doing, recently I've been doing a lot of like research in terms of like people's interests and like why they decide to join certain types of communities and like what things can like we do as community builders to realize like, oh, wow, there's this group of 25 like people who are in between things as a entrepreneur slash 10 of them are in the tech space. Two of them are developers, eight of them are salespeople and whatever they are, like how can we empower them and help them get to where they're trying to go or just show them where their people are based off their interests and like what I know. So it's, I'm I'm curious, like how, like what, how you can like talk to that. Yeah. It wasn't really quite, it was just like a thought. (laughs) I, well, as you're talking, I think the the hardest thing is recognizing that people are going to change. And they're not going to be just because someone is kind of quote unquote a part of your community. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're like Pokemon that you've collected, and they're never going to change. They're they're they're, they're going to evolve. <laughs> they're, 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 they're totally going to evolve, right? And they're going to evolve into things that that you would never have predicted. And they're going to leave, right? And they're going to leave because they're growing. They're growing because they're changing. They're changing because they're human, just like you. Yeah. And so the. You can have your hopes and dreams for you want this community to be, but I think simultaneously you have to kind of be prepared and to understand how it's a constantly changing thing. 
Um, and it's going to change in ways that you might not really like all the time. Right. Which is interesting because it's it's funny. I was just like, I literally had a flashback in my head. Do you remember the within the Pokemon games? For anybody listening that was a Pokemon fan, there were specific stones that you could give a Pokemon that you gave it, and literally it would transform into whatever you gave it at that time. Um, I forget what they were called, like, uh, but that reminded me. I was like, oh wow, like you can't just hand someone a like a a stone to transform and like make them into this fire breathing thing. Like they might turn into Squirtle or something like they, I I don't know. Like, so it, it made sense, but a lot of people might not understand that analogy, (laughs) but it's cool. Some people may, but it's, yeah, I think that's really important to remember in that, like, even though you're trying to, with, like you mentioned, like intent, like you're trying your best with the intentions of like helping that person. But like, you can't always control like what it actually develops into. You're creating the space, right? All you have control over is the space. You don't control how people interact within that space. You don't control how they behave. You don't control when they decide to leave, right? And and I think that's fine, right? And and but I think when thing, things go wrong, when you think that you control more than that. Interesting. And so, like, what would you say, like, if I if I were to like come across or see people that are trying to control too much of their communities, like what, from your experience, like what sort of like advice or thoughts would you bring up to them? Well, I mean, like sometimes it works, right? Like some, you have a cult, you know, <laughs> cult's going to cult, do really well. Uh, you have authoritarian regimes, authoritarian regimes going to regime. Um, Facts. You know, like, <laughs> so, you know, so there are situations where control oriented systems work, quote unquote, within a certain time frame. It's just not what I'm interested in, right? And and so you, you, you could probably find someone else who does go work in that way. I, I just think that it's, you know, I just think it's kind of dangerous. Yeah, just so everyone's aware, uh, Orbital is not a cult. <laughs> Gary is not a cult person. And yeah, happy, happy <laughs> community over there. Um, <laughs> no, I, th- I think it's important too, because sometimes it's, a lot of times, especially in like from where I like where I'm at in like the B2B community world, a lot of times it might feel like it's culty as a community, right? Like if there's a big brand on top of every event or like you have to do it this one way. And you find that with certain brands that are very particular about the way that their story is being told and want control over that. Like I Right. That's like what you're talking about there is really hard, right? Because I think that you also run into the issue of people who talk about communities, but they're not really communities. Mark Zuckerberg talks about the Facebook community, but like, ooh, I love this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love this. But like, like it is, and it's and it's ridiculous how religious he is about constantly using the word community instead of like user base. But come on, realistically, how many billions of people? Like, is this really a community? I mean, technically, we're all connected. Technically, we're all connected in some way. Whether it really matters, I mean, enough for us to use the word community, I think is is a separate thing. Like, I, like I almost think you don't get to bestow that upon yourself, right? No, right? yeah, like you 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 don't get to claim that. I think, but but let's just be real. He does that for you know for very specific intentional reasons. Right. It's just that they're never really going to ever be willing to admit those reasons. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Like the the idea of like saying, "Oh, well, there's this billion person community." <laughs> that's yeah, so I mean, interesting. I mean, it's 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 also look. He's he. I think that companies need a way to convince the labor force 
to spend their time and energy aligned with the interests of a corporation. And so whatever it takes to align those interests is what a company is going to do. Yeah. I find I find it it's so it, it's super fascinating to me to like look at or like talk with someone like you and then talk with someone who's managing you know a community at like Microsoft right like and, and those things do can exist though right? Like, right like for example I mean there are a lot of great I think in tech I think some of the best kind of examples of communities are like developer communities yep right because I because I think those are very focused there's a specific you know I think there's kind of a power equalization that happens there. Right. A lot of the tech companies, especially if they're producing APIs, they need developers to be active in building. And so there's an equitable exchange of, I think, power influence there that I think keeps things honest. But like I don't think that like I don't think you can really argue that that equitable exchange exists with Facebook and the user base and data and all of that. And so that's where I think things go off the rails is when companies purport to claim something as a community when there's not an equitable exchange of power happening. Yeah, I I actually really love that because another thing I've been thinking through like while taking notes on um, community building and listening just to various things, it's, it's like the notion of contribution and consumption. So like a like perfect example, it's like, well, if you're an ecosystem for developers, the developers are contributing to the product, which is then helping all the developers that are using the product, which then helps the community. And it's actually, it's like a flywheel. It's like an ecosystem. Whereas if you're just consuming anything, it literally goes back to the simplest form of like hunters and gatherers. If you're going to get food yeah. versus gathering, the food, like yeah, they it, each have their role. I, I feel, I think that what you're talking about is kind of like, is there really a system here, mm-hmm. or is it just a facade of a system? Yep, exactly. And it's very interesting when you like take a look at a community and see, like, oh wow, they're very active. They're not. Yes, you know, if a community, you have a community of a hundred people, ten of them might be like power users, thirty of them might be like medium users, and then like the other seventy are just like regular. I might show up sometimes users. So it's interesting to look at the dynamics of like who's contributing to what in different communities and also figure out how to empower someone who is, you know, in that group of 70 to become in that group of 20 and someone in that group of 20 to be in that group of 10. Right. So it's like... And it's, it's also really interesting once you start to see people's interests diverge. Oh. <laughs> right? Because yeah. that's, that's, when, that's when everything kind of, you know, goes off the rails. Wow. Have, I guess, have you seen... Like, oh, that what? happens all the time, right? Like, you know, you might need a certain segment of people to be highly engaged with your product or service or company at one stage, but then the company grows to another stage and mm. they're, they're no longer is necessary. That can get awkward in a community, I feel like. Oh, absolutely. For a company um, you know, or any organization or just group of people. It happens all the time. You know, and, and I, think that, I think that there's this... Look, the first wave of platforms from you know, mid, early, mid 2000s to now has been about playing that script. Mm. You know, we're a platform, we're a community, blah, blah, blah. And I think that culturally, before these things came into place, we were fundamentally not hyper-connected with each other. So culturally, there's this desire for us to, to buy into whatever narrative to be connected. I think the next 10, 15, 20 years is gonna be very different, right? You know, look at the kids. Kids know they're being tracked. Kids know how their data is being used. Kids know, like the, Snapchat's the best example, right? Snapchat was the first large-scale network to enable 
like very, very hyper uh, specific filtering. So, so it, it didn't operate with a feed mentality, a newsfeed mm. mentality. You could sp- say the, this, I want to show this to everybody, but these two people. Yeah, right? I do remember that. And, and so that was an acknowledgement of, of kind of this surveillance, the surveillance state of social networks for the, for, for the most part. And so, you know, I think that what we're going to see is a more, you're not going to be able to run the same playbook that has existed for the past 15 years in terms of faux community um, moving forward because people are going to recognize it for what it is. And they're no longer coming from this perspective of, oh, I wish I was connected to people because now they're like, we're, we're like way too connected. I need my own private space. I'm going to lock down my Instagram. You know, I'm going to be deleting photos, right? right? And so behavior has changed as a result. Yeah, I think that's super interesting because, I mean, I call myself out right here. Like I literally used to post to Instagram very often. And then I was doing a lot of like internal reflection, searching, um, a lot of like note taking and just journaling and maybe post once a month. Like I don't do stories, don't even have Snapchat. So it's, it's interesting because then when you go back in, you're like, oh, wow, like you can like within the DM function of Instagram, you can now select if you want people to actually see if you're active or not. And I'm just like, what? What? Yeah. <laughs> Connecting the world is not that exciting for people that are growing up today. Because it's like, why, why, are you even, why are you doing this? This is just how things are, right? Yeah, like, this know, is normal. I want the opposite of that. And, and so I think that's a, that's, a, that's a change that's going to happen probably. Yeah, and I also am, am interested to see within the next like five years or so, just like the comparison, right? Like when I was little, I would go out and go to the dirt trails at 7.30 a.m. in the summer and make little jumps out of dirt and shovels and wood, go fishing. Yeah, you're going to get back to building. Right, yeah. like literally would just be out in the wilderness until the sun went down. And then I had to be home before it got dark and I always got made fun of. Um, but... <laughs> Like, that's what, growing up for me, like, that's what it was. But, like, yeah. now it's like, well, I don't know. Like, I have I have yet to see the younger generation do things that don't involve technology. Or, like, every time I see someone, even, like, my niece, who's, like, just turned one, she, like, can hold a cell phone. Right. I'm like, that's weird. Right. Like, maybe, like, maybe hold a b- book or hold a, a stick. Go play in the grass, maybe. <laughs> Be one with nature. I I think it's a, yeah, this is kind of like a pendulum swinging in the other direction. Like you're not going to put the genie back in the bottle. The technology is here. Yeah. This infrastructure is here. That, that ship has sailed. This is just the new, the new normal. But I think that behaviors that a lot of, you know, like internet advertising is, is based on this behavior of people that are going to click on shiny things that are on a page. And once that becomes normalized, as it kind of has, and we stop clicking. Like, when's the last time you clicked on an ad? Mm, I'm really like, bad. because Where I, you everything. intentionally said, oh, look at this cute ad. I want to click on this and see what's on the next page. You've been trained to not do that. Yeah. Right? I was on Forbes the other day, and I got mad because ads kept popping up. And ads like, are the things stupid. that make you angry when you are trying to get things done in the world. Yes. Right? Yep. So that's the new default. So whatever is going to happen next is going to have to build on that behavior. It's going to have to acknowledge that behavior and build on it. So this is the same thing that I'm talking about, about work designing events and spaces, right? Yeah. If you if you are unwilling to acknowledge that, you know, behavior may have changed or behavior may not be going in the way that you want, then you're going to be slow to innovate. If you're going to be slow to innovate, then people are going to lap you. 
right? And I think that's the that's the challenge that a lot of people that are designing and, and thinking through ways of how to monetize or how to build sustainable systems or what people will or won't do. It's not just looking at what has worked in the past. It's not just kind of imaginative invention of coming up with things in your head and putting it out there. You have to accept the fact that the outcomes that are, are out of your control and people may or may not behave in the way that you anticipate. And then how do you work with that? I feel like that's a, if I, if I were a product manager, that would leave me with a lot of questions of like, well, what should we build for then if we can't use the previous state, right? It's like, what are they, they're building for a future that yet hasn't gotten here, but only can take the data points and like make this kind of picture about what their product looks like in the future based off of like the human behavior. And that's, that sounds like a challenging thing. It's, you know, it's, it's fundamentally about confronting uncertainty. Mm. How do you confront, you know, I think the, I think the only truth out there is, is the chaos of the world, right? That's a fact. And so um, how do you then learn to deal with that? You know, especially if, you know, and this, this ties into all the teaching that my partner Christine and I do. In, in a world where you are being trained to climb ladders, where you're being given these images of what it's like to excel and you're supposed, you're supposed to follow those steps, uh, that works well in an industrial era, right? Yeah. Where, where the outcomes are clearly defined, where it's like after you go to this place, you go to this place and you do this thing and you do this thing. But that's kind of not where we're at. I think we're 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 facing tremendous change. We're facing industries going away. We're facing you know all of these problems. And our thinking is that people need to be taught how to sail. You know, how do you sail the open sea versus how do you climb ladders? Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's a fundamental educational shift that needs to happen, and and it's tied it's tied to all the things that we've been talking about. Yeah, I really love that idea of confronting uncertainty. I feel like that's something that uniquely was like found um like in the or like through your work with Orbital, but then also like that's something that anybody can think of like, well, when you're confronting when you're confronting uncertainty, it's like, well, you're go, you're going in the right direction. Thanks for listening to the Community Builder podcast. If you received an ounce of value from this podcast, share it with your friends. Oh yeah. Don't forget to leave me a five-star review. I need those. Remember, each perfectly laid brick moves you one step closer to building your community. Community.